Dr. Michael Kimmel, welcome to Ask a Feminist. <laughs> nice to see you, Lisa. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be talking with you, uh, especially at this just sort of wild time in American history. Um, but before we get to current events, I was wondering, since some readers or listeners may not know of you, can you brag a little bit about what you've been doing through your career, maybe a little bit about how you got into studying masculinity? Sure. Um, yeah, well, I'm, I, I don't know about the bragging part, but um, but this is always the most difficult question. You can ask me anything about anything else, but ask me to like <laughs> give an advertisement for myself and it's very difficult. <laughs> Um, but let me, so, so, but for science readers, I think here's, here's how I would describe um, what I've tried to do. Um, I was inspired early on by women's studies and gender studies and realized quite early on that I had a kind of natural constituency, which is to study masculinity, to talk about men. Now, um, I, I will spare you the long story about my political involvement because it, but I will say that the reason I studied men was because I started teaching about men. And the reason I started teaching about men was because I was an activist in California um, working around issues around engaging men, around sexual assault and rape. Um, I was one of the people who founded the Santa Cruz Men Against Rape in 1978. So quite a long time, 40 years uh, ago part of the group that founded um, the National Organization for Men Against Sexism. That was long before I had any research interest in this field. Um, uh, my PhD dissertation, uh, which I'm sure every science reader has read, um, is on uh, 17th century French tax policy. Yeah. Um, so it has nothing to do with gender, masculinity, sexuality, <laughs> nothing. And um, so I was, I was pursuing a very different academic track but I was a political activist working in this space around engaging men, particularly around sexual assault and violence. And, um, and so when I got my first teaching job at Rutgers, I gave, I gave a talk at um, a Take Back the Night March in 1982. And, um, and one of the students in the, in the audience at the march came up to me afterwards and said, you know, what you were saying about men and sexual assault, that was really interesting. Have you ever thought about teaching a course about masculinity? And I looked at him and said, no, <laughs> you know, and it never occurred to me. But I thought, you know, maybe I should think about this. So I thought about it for a bit. And then I went to my dean. Now, this is a very important story for, for signs readers. I went to my dean, who was Catherine Stimson, the founder of signs maybe mm -hmm. the founder of academic women's studies in America. She was the dean of the college at, at Rutgers at the time. And I said to her, Kate, what do you think about this idea of teaching a course on masculinity? Now, I was a first year assistant professor, mind you. And she said, Lisa, the magic words that every assistant professor longs to hear. She said, I'll buy you out of your teaching for a semester <laughs> so you can hear it. So of course I did. <laughs> And I taught a course on masculinity in 1983, first course in the state of New Jersey um, on masculinity, and it took off. We had anticipated 20 people for the first semester. First time I taught it, we got 50. Second time we booked a room for 50, we got 150. Third time we booked a room for 150 and we got 400. So we obviously knew there was something going on. Uh, so, so what do you do 
when you want to teach a course? What's the first thing you do? Well, I mean, in the old days, you go to the library and you look for the books you want to assign. Well, in 1983, there weren't a whole hell of a lot of books that I could use in my course on masculinity that I wanted to teach. So I said, oh, well, I guess I'm going to have to write them. Um, and so my research, so the, the moral of the story, and by the way, that first class, I mean, we used plays. I used Death of a Salesman. I used um, Lysistrata. I used uh, Hamlet. Um, we used novels. Um, uh, we used, um, let's see, uh, China Boy, a novel by a, a Chinese-American author in San Francisco named Gus Lee. We used um, Huckleberry Finn. I mean, I, a great Gatsby. I used yeah. anything I can grab, basically. And oh, and we used real men don't eat quiche. <laughs> I, I was looking for anything. So yeah. anyway, my, my point is, I, I guess the moral of the story for me is that my research comes out of my pedagogy and my pedagogy comes out of my activism. So unless I'm true to that activism, I won't trust my, my teaching or my research. Um, I've always tried to maintain a balance between being an activist and being a researcher. So, so what distinctively could I bring to the conversation about gender that was through the 80s and 90s and until now just been exploding? Well, I mean, and this would be familiar, I think, to you, given you know the, the your your wonderful book, Hooked Up, uh, uh, hooking up is is. Um, I figured that what I could do that would be different is whenever ever anyone talks in this intersectional moment, whenever anybody talks about gender or masculinity, we always go to the margins. We talk about those who are marginalized by, 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 by inequality and discrimination. So we talk about people of color, but we really don't have a, a much of a theory of whiteness. We talk, about, we talk about LGBT people, but we don't have a theory about heterosexuality. And we talk about women, but we don't talk about men. That is, we don't, we don't name straight, white, middle-class, you know, able-bodied, cisgender men. And so I decided, okay, that's what I'm going to do. If, if our political goal is to decenter that center, the first task is to make it visible. So I've published now three, what we would call big books. The three big, by three big books, I mean the books that got reviewed in the New York Times book review and got lots of publicity, the Washington Post book review, all of those like places that, you know, like like NPR shows and, you know, the Today Show, whatever else. So the first one was called Manhood in America, and it posed the question, how did this particular idea of masculinity, it, uh, the first, you know, what I call the self-made man, how did that become the model of masculinity? in the United States in the early part of the 19th century? How did it displace the other models, the old gentry, the shop, the shopkeeper, the small artisan, the, the, the worker? Uh, how did it displace those and become the model that then be, defines the United States? So that you know, by the 1840s, Tuckville is writing all about the self-made man. How is it, um, you know, and, and, and so that was a story that I wanted to tell about class and about race, and about uh, about immigration, about how this model basically problematized all of the others. The second book I wrote was Guyland, which takes that same story and says, how did this numerical minority, straight white frat guys, 
how did they come to dominate the entire campus life of most major campuses? How did that happen? So again, I want to name the center so as to decenter it. And the last book, my most recent book, Angry White Men, does the same thing. How come white men who are arguably the most privileged people on the planet, how come they're so pissed off? How come they think they're the victims? So those are the three big books, and they're all about trying to name the center, to map the center, to talk about what it means to be a straight, white, cisgender, heter, you know, uh, man in America. Um, so that, because the larger project is, if, if it becomes just one of many masculinities, not the dominant one, so much the easier to decenter it. Yeah. So long-winded, yeah. sorry, but that's, 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 my, that's who I am. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been a really impressive career, and and out of that group of men, um, that that sort of the men who have been centered in our society so far, come a lot of men who we would say are somehow problematic or creating social problems. Mm -hmm. So you have studied amongst them militia men and mass shooters and anti-feminist men. Um, domestic terrorists, um, and in your new book, neo-Nazis and white supremacists. So um, these, these are men who perhaps come out of your interest in making sure that your activism and your pedagogy is in, in line with your, your research. Um, today, we describe them often, even in popular culture, as toxic men, men who are embodying a toxic masculinity. Uh, and that's the thing we've been asked to, to sort of focus on for our talk today. So can you First, like define masculinity for me um, and talk a little bit about the difference between masculinity and being a person with a male body and then reflect on that idea of toxic masculinity. Yeah, well, let me let me go back. Uh, I mean, the, to, to the preface, uh, the predicate of your question. Um, yes, I have focused on a lot of guys who are angry and complain a lot about masculinity. Uh, and the ones who think that they don't, they not, they're not in power, they're not privileged. And I do this for political reason, um, because we, we in the gender studies world, the feminist studies world, come, come out of talking about um, masculinity as being powerful. Um, and, I think, I, I, and I think that that's not men's experience of this. And I think this is an important sort of entry point for me into this conversation. So. So like feminism basically offered women a symmetry between the social and the individual. The social observation was women as a group are not in power. And individually, women didn't feel powerful. So feminism basically said, let's address both of those, the individual powerlessness and the social powerlessness. When you apply that same syllogism to men, men are in power, everyone agrees, but when you say, therefore, men must feel powerful, they look at you cross-eyed. They say, what are you talking about? I, I have no power. My wife bosses me around. My kids boss me around. My boss bosses me around. And now what happened as a result of that? So, so with women, you have a kind of symmetry. With men, you have an asymmetry. No, all of the power in the world has not trickled down to individual men feeling powerful. This is important because you have a whole bunch of political groups out there who are saying things like, you know, guys, you know how you don't feel powerful? You're right. The feminist women, they have all the power. Let's go get it back. That's the men's rights guys. 
Then you have the guys who are saying, yes, you know how you don't feel powerful? Let's troop off into the woods and we'll chant and we'll drum and we'll do the power rituals, right? And again, uh, that's the mythopoetic group. I think our task has to be to address the, the, the asymmetry between the social and the individual. And here's how we do it. Our analysis of patriarchy is not simply men's power over women. It's also some men's power over other men. Patriarchy has mm-hmm. always been a dual system of power. Mm-hmm. And unless we acknowledge that second one, we won't get an, an idea of why so many men feel like they're, 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 they're complete losers in, this, in the gender game. And they're, not, and they're not at all privileged and they'll resist any effort towards gender equality. So I think we can make them allies. So now let me go to the, the, the second part of your question. So what do I think masculinity is? Um, this, is I, this is the part where I'm gonna punt. Uh, I'm a social scientist. Masculinity is what men think it is. Um, and here's the part that I find you know, important. We've been asked in our conversation today to talk a little bit about toxic masculinity. And that usually, that phrase is usually put up against healthy masculinity. So we want to discourage the behaviors that are toxic to women, children, men, and all other living things. And then um, we want to uh, we want to encourage the parts that are healthy masculinity. So you see a lot of conversations about criticizing the toxic and developing healthy masculinity in boys and things like that. I have found in 40 years of activism that the toxic healthy dichotomy doesn't resonate for many men. I feel that when we come to them and talk about toxic masculinity, they very often think that we're telling them they're doing it wrong, that they're bad, they're doing it wrong, and they have to change and give up their ideas of masculinity, they're the toxic ones, and, and embrace the new ones. Basically, we're asking them to renounce um, Vin Diesel and embrace Ryan Gosling. Um, and men won't go for it. They're too afraid to let go of things because you think they're unhealthy. So I feel like it keeps this toxic, healthy thing keeps guys kind of in a a little bit askew, not exactly full on resistant, although some are, but not engaged. So I found it better. This is my own activist work and I'm perfectly happy to hear from science readers and from you um, about what uh, what you would think of this. Um, But I have found it better to ask men what it means to be a good man and then contrast that with what it means to be a real man. Here's what I say. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, I was at uh, West Point um, giving the annual sexual assault awareness lecture there. So so you can imagine a, a room full of cadets and an auditorium full of cadets. And I asked them, what does it mean to be a good man? You know, you wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror and you say to yourself, you're a good man. What does that mean? You know, you think, imagine your funeral and you want it to be said of you, he was a good man. So what does that mean? Here's what they said. Now, this is West Point. Honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, stand up for the little guy, be a provider, be a protector, um, be, you know, sacrifice. That was one of the, one of the first things that they said. Um, you know, uh, you know, give to others, be generous, um, responsible. That's what they said it means to be a good man. Now, you and I would probably say, 
Well, actually, that's what it means to be a good person. And you, and I completely agree with you. However, they, those guys, experienced it as gender. So where did you learn that, I asked? And they said, well, it's everywhere. It's our culture. It's Homeric. It's Shakespearean. It's the Judeo-Christian heritage, you know? I said, that's fine. Okay. So that's what it means to you to be a good man. Now, tell me if all of those traits, integrity and honor and responsibility and sacrifice, tell me if those show up for you when I say this. Man the F up. Be a real man. And they said, oh, no, no, that's completely different. I said, well, what is that? And they said, tough, strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, be, you know, uh, suck it up, play through pain, uh, be competitive, get rich, get laid. I said, okay, that's what it means to be a real man. Where did you learn that? And they said, in order, my father, my coach, my guy friends, my older brother. So here's what I think they were telling me. First of all, they were telling me that, that the real man is, is the performative part. The real man is the part that has to perform for others um, to validate their masculinity. So the real man is homosocial. The good man is abstract. It's not necessarily interactive. So here's what I told them. I said, here's what I know about you. I, I've never met you before, and I'll probably never see many of you again. But here's what I know. There's going to be a time in your life, if there hasn't already, when you are going to be asked to betray your own values, your own ethics, your own idea of what it means to be a good man in order to prove to others that you're a real man. You're going to be asked to not see what you see. You're going to be able, you're going to be asked to not do anything about what you see, even if you know it's wrong. You're going to be asked to not speak about something that you see. You are going to be asked to betray your own values. So I was not there to tell them that their, their behaviors were toxic. I was there to tell them that they are already experiencing a conflict inside them between their own values and this homosocial performance. So my job then shifted, not from scolding them to saying, how can I support you living up to not my definition of a good man, but yours? Mm -hmm. You already know the answer to this. You already do it very often in private. You already do it when you stand up for the right, for the little guy, when you do the right thing. You already do it. How can we, we grown-ups? how can we, the rest of society, support you in, your, in living up to your own standards? I think that's a more, a, a more effective way to reach these guys than it is to say, you're doing it wrong. Here's how to do it right. Wow. That sounds like a really powerful, uh, you know, pedagogical tool where instead of telling, you sort of lay out the groundwork for them to see it for themselves quite clearly. And um, just an incredibly useful and practical way to address these these problems. And I really, I could see that your, your book that's forthcoming in February, I believe, mm -hmm. is Healing from Hate. Yeah. And I, you, you gave me a preview. Thank you for that. Um, and it was, the book is, is really, it's amazing. It's amazing that you have got access to these um, young men who had left all kinds of different hate groups. It was, it was remarkable how young they were when they entered um, yeah. and how eager many of them were to leave 
and how much masculinity played a role in both their entering and their leaving. And, and I definitely could, I, I would like you to talk a little bit about the practical usefulness of masculinity for drawing men out of, of these organizations and, and, and talk about the book in general, if you like. Sure. Uh, thanks. The, the, um, just be, before I before I do, I do want to say, since you and I both have worked on this and nobody is more visible at this instant than you and Frank Bruni on saying maybe we should rethink oh. the whole idea of these fraternities. But yeah. that's what I I've done that same thing about good man and real man with frat guys when I've worked with them. And I've said to them um, when they when they say to me, well, I know you're here to tell us, tell us that we shouldn't exist and fraternity shouldn't go, you know, should go away, et cetera. And I said, I right, maybe not. Here's a here's a little good man, real man thing for you. OK, bring me your charter. Bring me the charter of your fraternity. So they bring me the charter. And I said, now show me the part in your charter where it says, and we will have parties where we get girls so drunk that they can't stand up and they pass out so we can fuck them. And you know what? It doesn't say that in their charter. Nowhere. And it, but I said, well, well, then how can you do that? Here's what it does say. You're men of honor. You're men of integrity. You are about service. You are about citizenship. I don't want you to live up to my ideals. I want you to live up to yours. If you can live up to your own ideals, you'll have a reason to exist. Otherwise, no, I'm not okay with it. So again, I think I, I think we can use that kind of frame sometimes. And I know that, you know, as I said, you, no one's more visible right now in this space. And you, your, your inbox must be mighty interesting. <laughs> the result, because um, mine's interesting, and I'm not out there on this one yet. Um, but let me say, so I wrote this book, Angry White Men, and it it left me, and I wrote it in 2013, and when I wrote it, the name Trump wasn't even in the book, um, and yet I wrote it about the people who came to be his his army. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, on the one hand. The fact that I wrote it in, in 2013 and suddenly he's elected in 2016 and, you know, my phone hasn't stopped ringing from reporters who go, oh, my God, he saw it coming. But the thing is, that book left me really pretty depressed. And the election and subsequent policy maneuvers of the Trump administration have left me even more depressed um, and, and sort of despairing. The one thing I thought would happen um, is that the angry white men that I profiled in that book would become increasingly loud but decreasingly numerous on the internet. Mm-hmm. I, may have, I may have been off by a few years on that one, yeah. but, but I've never written a more optimistic book than Healing From Hate, my new book. Because yeah. after all of the stuff that I said about these angry white men and how they get into the movement and how, they, how masculinity kind of is, is wrapped up in how they get in and how they see themselves, I've, these guys get themselves out, Lisa. They, they did it themselves. These were guys who were in the movement, neo-Nazi skinheads. And they said, you know, this is not working. This mm-hmm. is wrong. I've got to figure it out. And they have gotten themselves out of the movement. They are now working to help other guys get out of the movement. They did this themselves with no support. Uh, in the US, in fact, the Obama administration had given Life After Hate, one of the organizations I profile in the book, um, they'd given uh, they'd given Life After Hate a, a grant under their new counterterrorism um, program, and the Trump administration took it away because the only uh, anti-terrorism work that they're funding is anti-Islamic terrorism. So here are domestic terrorists, and you know, seven to ten times more likely 
that you know there's going to be domestic terrorist event than a than a foreign a foreign terrorist event, and they lost their funding. Um, and uh, you know, at, at, at some point, um, you know, I, I may be able to tell you how they how they're basically cobbling together that funding. It's really an interesting story. But here are these guys who said, you know, we've got to help guys get out of there. And one of the founders of Life After Hate, Sammy Rangel, is a former LA East LA gang member who's been working to, you know, because the gang model is a similar masculinity validation process. So he's been working with them. These guys, they're so inspiring. One of these guys, um, uh, uh, Frankie Meek, who I, who I profile in the book, he spends most much uh, spends his time doing two things. He runs around the country talking at yeshivas and Hebrew schools and temples, talking about his past as a neo-Nazi. And the other part, he he runs a hockey program in Des Moines to help, you know, kids from different backgrounds play hockey together, because he thinks that'll help you know sort of reduce the kind of uh, kind of stereotypes and hatred among different groups. He's living every day. He's living. The stuff that Tom Pettigrew found in the 1960s about the contact hypothesis. If you want to break down stereotypes, put people together, give them a common task, and that's the way to. He's doing it every day. He didn't. He didn't go to Harvard to study with Tom Pettigrew. He figured it out for himself. These people are so inspiring to me. So it's the most optimistic book because it says guys can get out. Guys can figure out ways and. The way that they get out, of course, it has to model, has to mirror the way they got in. You can't get a guy out of the neo-Nazi movement by walking up to him and saying, your ideas are stupid, because it's not about a kind of intellectual you know, uh, uh, analysis of, uh, of uh, in social relations. It's about a visceral experience that these guys had. So what gets them out, what gets them in is masculinity. Um, and we don't see that. So, so you know, we focus on. I mean, I'll give you. I'll tell you a story. Here's a. It's a. It's a good Southern California story since you're in Southern California, or at least most of the time you're in Southern California. <laughs> um, so, so here's a Southern California story. Imagine a skater park, at, in say Long Beach, um, and it's about seven o'clock at night in the. You know, and it's just getting dark, and everybody's gone home except this one lone guy wearing a flannel, t a flannel shirt tied around his waist, kind of stringy, oily hair and acne. He's about 15 and he's by himself. And he's the kid who gets bullied in school. He has no friends. He's going to go home, have a quick dinner and then go down to the basement and play video games all night, blowing up the rest of the world. That's, that's, his, that's, his, that's his daily routine. And into the skater park come these guys who are like awesome and scary. And they start talking to him. Hey, how you doing? What, what's up? And by the end of the conversation, they say, you should hang with us. You're really cool. You should hang with us. We have awesome parties. I mean, everybody gets like really drunk and like it's really fun. And there's girls. And then after we, everybody's drunk and stuff, we all take painkillers and we go out in the streets and we look for immigrant groups and we have fights with them. It's fantastic. Dude, you should definitely come with us. So he goes with them. He goes to parties. They go fight. They do all these things. And, all, and they're telling him, you're one of us, you're a pal, you're a comrade. And so what he gets at that moment has nothing to do with ideology. They haven't even talked about it yet. 
they talk about how he's a, he's a cool dude, how he hangs out with the guys, how he's one of them, he's part of the family. He feels completely a sense of connection, community, camaraderie, and they start to, and they validate his masculinity. They say, you're a real man, you're awesome. And then, and only then do they start saying, and you have a sacred mission. You have to preserve the white race. You are a man has to do this. We have to do this together. The ideology is not the, first, the thing that brings them in. It's their experience of feeling connected. Unless we pay attention to that, we'll never understand how to get them out. Because getting them out means you have to give them a place to land as a man. Mm-hmm. Right? You can't just tell them, you know, imagine a guy with the, the, the story I just told you. Imagine going up to him and saying, your ideas are stupid. How far are you going to get? It's insane. That's, and that's the essence of our de-radicalization programs, telling them that their ideas are wrong. Right. What we have to do is we have to understand that these guys get in to validate their masculinity. To get them out, you have to give them an alternative way to experience being a man. Mm-hmm. How, how does that happen? Some of them kind of age out. You know, it's cool to go fight and get drunk and go to parties at 15, not so cool at 35. So some of them just age out, but most of them have a break. And the reason for that break is they have a kid, they have a girlfriend, they have a mom. And those, those people say, I want, I, it's, it's, us or, it's us or them. You know, you have to choose because I'm not, you know, their girlfriends or their wives say, I'm not sticking around with this anymore. Their children start saying racism. One guy told me that he was completely in the movement. And then his three-year-old and he were watching TV and his three-year-old started yelling racist things at the TV. And he said, whoa, I'm teaching him this. And, he, and it completely freaked him out. And he, he's, the, he's the guy who literally like, talk, went to talk to his mom. His mom said, I'm furious with you. Here's what you have to do. He boxed up all of his neo-Nazi paraphernalia and went over to the Anti-Defamation League in, in Los Angeles and says, I have something to give you. I have something to tell you about me and I want to, I want to work with you to help guys get out. That's how it works. Yeah. You know, I'm, listening I'm to so you inspired by them. <laughs> yeah. It's, it is a very inspiring book and it's, um, I, I wonder if we can try to translate some of that optimism to what we're facing right now in America politically. I mean, arguably, uh, Donald Trump is a hateful president. He ran a hateful campaign that was against and anti so many kinds of people. Uh, and he, he somehow managed to attract a lot of, of people, men and women, who found that really attractive. Do, am I stretching to see parallels there? No, um, you know, Trump is an interesting character because he channels all of those, uh, that, that sense of what I call the grieved entitlement, that sense of injustice that so many men feel that Arlie Hochschild talks about, for example, um, in Strangers in Their Own Land. And, and, you know, to some degree that, you know, Hillbilly Elegy talks about, but he kind of likes it. Um, um, but I think, um, but Trump is also, I mean, Trump illustrates a different kind of masculinity as well, not simply the bellicose, not simply the the angry, but also the most, he must be the most thin-skinned president we've ever had, 
Each criticism is experienced by him as an existential threat, a threat to his very existence. He must obliterate it or he cannot go on. He can't let go of anything that because it seems to, it feels to be such a threat. This is the essence, of course, that every psychoanalyst will tell you this is the essence of narcissism. But it does seem to me that what he's doing by being that is he's channeling all of the injuries that so many people feel that they have experienced. Um, and so he's, ex he's constantly exploding, constantly saying they're hurting us. They're doing this to us. That is the refrain of the angry white man. They're doing this to us. Or the government is letting them do it to us. That's even worse. So, of course, the government's the enemy. Um, you know, and, and I do think it's a mistake to think uh, that this is uh, new. The, the, this ground has been seeded for a long time, seeing the government as the enemy, seeing them, seeing it as us and them. This was long paved by the, by the Reagan administration. Um, you know, that's where this comes from. But if, in a way, I, I do feel... Um, these guys, these guys I've talked to give me a little bit of hope because I don't think that populism as a populism comes from that sense of, of, of aggrieved entitlement. It comes from a sense of injustice. They've done some bad things to us. And frankly, the white working class in this country has been dealt a bad hand. Um, they, they have been screwed. Um, I just think that they're, you know, that they're delivering their mail to the wrong address. Um, yes, of course, uh, you know, uh, but, but, you know, uh, women aren't responsible for downsizing them. You know, uh, you know, LGBT people didn't cause climate change. Um, immigrants didn't issue predatory loans. I mean, you know, they're, yes, of course they're getting screwed, but it's not by the people they're angry at. Yeah. But here's the, I, but I, I can't help but think that populism is not a theory. It's not a well-worked out theory. It's an emotion. It's an emotion of aggrievement. It's an emotion that uh, of injustice, of, of, of righteous anger at injustice, at perceived injustice. And there's a populism of the left that works at the same time as the populism of the right. Now, at the moment, we're in the middle of a populism of the right moment in Poland, in Hungary, in the United States. But I would just remind you, you know, Woody Guthrie was a populist. Bruce Springsteen is a populist. He's the poet laureate of the white working class, and he's a progressive. Um, Bernie Sanders, a little bit of a populist, but, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren is because she's a consumer she's a consumer advocate. That's that's where it comes from. It's not from, you know, in the old uh, Marxian idea. It's not the that's not production. It's from consumption that we draw most of our politics these days. So. So I think that left populism still has a chance. And, and, and let me just say, what divides, what, what the, 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 the criterion by which you would see right, right populism or left populism is race. Right-wing populism sees a white-black divide as core and essential, and that they are the ones that are keeping us from having what we want. Left-wing populism sees class, not race, and says ra race and ethnicity and sexuality should all unite because um, because that's the real the real dynamics are class dynamics and that's really where the division I think comes from. Sure. So, what role do you see masculinity then playing overall in both sort of the the rise of of Trump and his supporters and the kinds of activities that 
that are we're seeing around him, such as Charlottesville and and other kinds of violent activities, um, or or divisive activities, but also yeah. the res response to to Trump, because we're seeing absolutely polarized uh, political activism at the moment. I'd um, you know, um, yeah, I I, I, I think. Um, some of the response that I'm seeing among the white nationalists now, uh, could we, let me let me start again. Ask me the question again. We can cut this later. <laughs> Ask me the question again. Okay. So what role do you see masculinity playing in the uh, both the rise of Trump and his supporters and the kind of um, emboldening of white nationalists and, and other kinds of, of, of extremists in our society right. on the right, but also potentially the, the backlash on or the, the in, increased sort of activism on the left as well. So, so yeah, uh, yeah. So now I, I now I remember yeah, I kind of like what I was, what I was, uh, what I was asking you about. Remember when we were talking about the, the ex neo-Nazis that I've interviewed for healing from hate and how these groups that are working with them try to give them a place to land as a man, mm -hmm. a, a, you know, so they provide therapy, job training, uh, um, job placement services, safe houses. They give them a way to sort of leave and feel anchored like stakeholders. Okay. So here's the, the, the question. Um, so what enables them to feel like a man is that they have a place to land. What was the first, do you remember in January 2009, the very first proposal that President Obama floated um, was to, to expand dramatically community colleges, to make community colleges free and accessible to everyone. That was a way to give a lot of these alienated guys who had been downsized and, and offshored um, a place to land. Let them be retrained and and for uh, the for the new you know information economy. Um, of course, it went nowhere in the Republican Congress. He was unable to get it through because they were you know they were absolutely intransigent. That's a policy that would have enabled a lot of these guys to remain stakeholders in their own lives in their own system. A lot of the guys that are now sort of flocking to Trump feel like they have nothing to lose. In fact, he Trump even said that, but he was saying it to black people and lying when he said it hasn't worked out for you under Obama. What do you got to lose? Vote for me. Well, it turns out they black people had a lot to lose and they knew it. And so, you know, um, I, and so I'm you know, saying this to all of those, you know, stalwart Bernie and Jill Stein voters. Ninety five percent of black women voted for, voted for Hillary. They knew better. You know, um, so, you know, whatever happened to listen to the women, that's what I always say. That's what I want to ask. Um, you know, so so it seems to me that that's the strategy. That's the tactic. If you want these guys to get out, you have to give them a place to land. You've got to give them a place where they feel like that this is their, still their system, their country. They're yelling at, at me. Is this a white country or what? And I'm thinking they don't think it is anymore. We have to allow white people to think that they still have a stake in this system. We have to give, we, but but in a in a different system, right? I'm not suggesting that the white supremacists are right. I'm saying they're right to be angry, but they're wrong in their analysis of why right. they're angry. Right, and they seem to imagine, so to paint with a broad brush and to be um, 
to paint with a broad brush, they seem to the the, the aggrieved set, right? They they seem to imagine that the Republican Party is the answer. That the Republican Party will somehow find a way to reinstate um, a good mess, a good an opportunity to be a good man in, in their own lives. Right. And the irony, right, is that it's the Republican Party that has been systematically dismantling their ability to live up to their own. Um, ideals about what it means to be a good man and a good person. And so how, and of course, right now we have the tax bill, which is going to even further eviscerate this possibility by widening the gulf between the rich and the poor. So <laughs> I think, I think you're, I think you're right. The answer is to give them an alternative masculinity that they can feel good about. But, but it seems like our, our political structure right now is doing the, the opposite of that and we're powerless to, yeah. to stop it. There's, there is a, a kind of what's the matter with Kansas moment in which people are invited because of social issues to vote against their class interests, to vote with the rich against themselves. Uh, it's hard to imagine that this tax bill would get support among white working class people, yeah. but, but they, they, they want, you know, um, you know, it's going to be the largest transfer of wealth from the from the bottom to the top we've ever experienced. So, so it, that is that is a I, I mean, and and it's hard to imagine for me that we have we have never seen such a a spineless Congress that as the Republicans unwilling to do the right thing and be ethical, even when it means you know embracing a pedophile. Um, you know, it's it, it it is hard to imagine this, you know, this moment, I suppose. Um, and yet I think, I don't know. I mean, it's a dark, it's a dark time and I don't want to, I don't want to minimize that, but I take hope in the fact that, that people are capable of getting out of this. Here's, here's where I, here's where I think that the, what's the matter with Kansas kind of argument is resonates emotionally, not culturally. The guys that I've talked with, um, especially in angry white men. These are guys in their mid thirties um, who are now active in the white supremacist movement. So they're not necessarily the guys who were at Charlottesville who skewed in their twenties, but they're the guys who've been active for a while. I'm sure there were plenty of those guys too um, who were there, but they, the way they tell it, they made a bargain. They made a bargain with this country and it was the same bargain their fathers and grandfathers made. And the bargain was this, I will, work my ass off in a job that I hate for a boss that I hate, who's an idiot, but I will work hard. I will pay my taxes. And in return for that, like my daddy before me and my grand grandfather before him, I will be able to support a family by myself. And I will be able to buy a house by myself. That means my wife should not have to work. Though that phrase have to work, is still operative for a large number of these guys. And let me tell you, the women, they agree with these guys. They don't wanna have to work. They want their husbands to take care of them. They wanna stay home with the kids. And you know, and 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 so this is so so this is the bargain they feel like they got, they they wanted. And it's gone. They can't do it. And they feel like they've been betrayed. And now you so this is the bargain that they that they went for. This is what they expected. They expected to have a life just like their fathers. And now they have to talk about gender neutral fucking bathrooms. They have to talk about same sex marriage. The heads are exploding. 
They can't. I mean, there's no one. It's not that they're against these reforms. They are completely bewildered. In one short generation, they've gone from feeling like Don Draper to debating trans bathrooms. They don't know what to do. Um, And I think that we do ourselves a great disservice if we don't pay attention not to the opposition, but to the anguish that comes from being so bewildered by the extent and the rapidity of this change. If we simply, and, and look, we do this all the time, don't we? We focus on how far we have to go. Oh my God, we still have this, we still have this, there's so far to go. We need to pause, take a look around, and turn around and see just how far we've come. Because in their eyes, the transformation has been dazzlingly fast, utterly bewildering, and it, and it scares the crap out of them. Yeah. And I think we do ourselves a disservice politically if we don't pay attention to what we sociologists like to call anomie. Right. Once the ground was solid under their feet, it was for their fathers, their grandfathers all the way back in time. And now it doesn't it feels like quicksand and they don't know where they stand anymore. And if we don't pay attention to that, we will lose them. So can I. So there's a debate on the left that I'd like to set up and have you respond to um, that you're kind of tapping into. So the debate on the left is, should we. Um, be spending all of this time worrying about this percentage of the population that are aggrieved men who have, who have, for whatever reason, and possibly for very good reasons, um, or or I'll say very understandable reasons, thrown their lot in with hateful politics and divisiveness and want to return back and, and don't want to have to adjust to all these dazzling changes. Um, should we spend a lot of time worrying about them, petting their heads, trying to um, convince them to, to do something different when they have really quite made a, a strong statement that they are averse to that? Yeah. Um, or should we focus our, our energy on the coalition on the left that is basically everybody but white men and married white women yeah. um, and try to nurture that coalition? Uh, these these things seem to get set up as two different, very different choices. And I hear you kind of in, in, in the first camp, and that camp has been criticized. How would you respond to that? Um, I think it's a false choice. I think both and. I don't think either or. That's the first thing I would say. Secondly, I would love to know exactly what you're talking about, about this coalition, because I see the left completely cannibalizing each other, screaming more at each other than at the, than, than at the power structure, frankly. Um, and, I'm, and I'm sick of it. Um, I think we should be in coalition. Um, I think my inspiration for what that means is from Bernice Johnson Regan from Sweet Honey in the Rock. She said, you don't, make, you don't build coalitions with people you agree with on everything. You make coalitions with people you agree on on one thing. You hold all your differences, but on this one, we agree. Let's work together on this. And we'll talk about all the other stuff where we disagree. So, for mm-hmm. example, I, you know, one of the organizations that I've worked with over the years, um, the White Ribbon Campaign in Canada, their first when they first emerged, there was a whole group of nuns who wanted to work with them because this is about violence against women. They were opposed to violence against women. They're also opposed to reproductive choice. Um, so the White Ribbon Campaign had a real dilemma. Were they going to work with this group or not? If you run purity tests on who you're going to work with, you'll work by yourself. Um, it seems to me that coalitions require that we work with people we don't agree with. 
And I think that's great. And I'm looking, I'm waiting for this coalition to be emerging among the, you know, among the, on the, on, in, among feminists on the left, because I see us mostly yelling at each other. That's the first thing. And you, you're going to write off white men. I think that's a bad mistake. I don't think we organize our politics towards them. I think we try to figure out entry points for them into it. So I think that's, a, that's I think politically, um, we don't, we, we don't, we do ourselves for them. We stay with, you know, with what we, what we believe, but, but we don't exclude them either because we're looking then at a rear guard action. That's going to be really quite unpleasant. Um, mm -hmm. And yes, eventually they'll, you know, they'll be mostly noisy on, on the internet because I do think that they, that the deal is, is in, you know, the future is going to be more gender equal than the present. Um, I, 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 I don't see it. I mean, I agree with Martin Luther King's idea that, the arc of, of history always points to a greater justice. There's lots of back, there's lots of backsliding uh, and efforts to push it back. But, you know, I, I, I think the fix is in. I don't think women are going to have this moment where they're going to have a, they, they're not going to have an Ann Coulter moment where they go, oh, you know what? They're right. You know, let's not, let's stop voting. Let's stop, you know, serving on juries. Let's stop working. You know, let, let's stop driving cars. Let's stop having orgasms. I mean, that's not going to happen. So the fix is in men's choice is, are we going to be drag kicking and screaming into that future? Or are we going to say, all right, that's the deal. Let's check it out. It might not be bad for us also. I, I don't think that's a bad thing to say. So I think so in, in the work that I do with uh, with corporations, for example, I work a lot to trying to engage men to support gender equality in corporations, you know, because there's a big initiative around diversity and inclusion. And white men often feel like this is not, you know, I, I need to sabotage this. I need to, to confront this. This is not about me. This is reverse discrimination against me. Um, and I feel like men can be part of that conversation. So my job has been to find, OK, what are the entry points for men? into this conversation about gender equality. So one of them turns out to be involved fatherhood. Another one turns out to be teamwork in, in corporations. Another one turns out among younger people to be friendships, cross-sex friendships. There's a large number of, of entry points for, for men into this conversation. Now, here's what I would say politically. That's not your job. You have enough on your plate. That's my job. Men have to do this work. We're the ones who have to talk to other men about sexual assault. We're the ones who have to talk to men about sexual harassment in, in, in the workplace. You have enough on your plate. So I, so I don't think we want to write men out. I don't think we want to write them off. But I don't think we want to completely reorient our po political positions to, to make, it, make it nice and easy for them. Right. So it sounds like you're saying we need to, of course, work on our coalitions on the left, but find one thing that we can also ally with, um, with this population of men who feel so aggrieved. Um, but it, it also sounds like this idea of the self-made man that became so prominent, as you documented in Manhood in America, yeah. is, is no longer possible. So the thing that they want, the good man that they want to be, is no longer possible because women are not going to go back to those days. Right. So what is the new masculinity that this leftist coalition needs to offer these guys? Well, I think um, it's the it's the some of the values of that being a good man, being a good person. I think what we want to do is we want to sort of gradually over time. I think we need to degender those ideas. 
because being a good man is being a good person, honor, integrity, doing the right thing, you know, uh, being responsible to others, being accountable. I mean, that's what people should be doing. It seems to me that um, I want to find, I, I mean, again, my, my task is to try to find ways to bring them into this um, because I don't feel, I, I, because I feel like if I can convince men that they're stakeholders in the efforts for gender equality, that they'll live better lives. Let me put it this way. Politically, I am not opposed to using various strategies to engage men in this. So if I can't get you to think through this idea and the abstract with me about how gender equality is good for your company, better for your bottom line in a kind of Sheryl Sandberg way. Well, here's another thing. Got a daughter, right? You know, you want her to experience this. What is the single best predictor of a CEO supporting gender equality in, in, in his corporation of a male CEO? Having a daughter. I'm willing to say that because these same guys who are saying women shouldn't are also coaching their girls' ASO soccer team. You know, I think in our day-to-day -day lives that, you know, we are already, you know, every man is genetically connected to a woman. Um, every, every man I've ever met knows what it feels like to love a woman and want her to thrive because we're also in relationships as fathers, as sons, as friends, as partners, colleagues, lovers, husbands, we, we all have relationships with women that we love and we want to support them and we don't want bad things to happen to them. So it seems to me that that's a place where I can talk with anybody. I could sit down with Richard Spencer and I could say, you know, but he doesn't have any kids. He's not married, but he has a not, he has a mom who's very, very supportive. Would you want this to happen to your mom? I could talk with them about these things. That's what I mean by a coalition. What's the one thing? There are women in our every every one of our lives that we love. And I think that's a that's an entry point. Yeah, I, I mean, so you specifically argue in Healing from Hate, and I, I think it's a strong argument that men need a masculinity to land on. Mm -hmm. And and again, I so what what's what's the next step? How how what masculinity are we, is it going to be this kind of partnership masculinity that you are kind of implying with every man has the woman he he, he knows who he wants to thrive um can can you try to be a little bit more specific about how like a, a positive future you could imagine that brings those men out of their hateful space and into coalition with progressives. <laughs> okay, um, I would urge uh, uh, those who are reading or watching this to take a look at the TED talk by Justin Baldoni, which just went up, uh, which he just did at TED Women this year. Um, and of course, while you're there, you should look at my TED talk because it's very important that we get lots of people looking at our TED talks. Um, and my mother has watched it many, many, many times, but can't <laughs> possibly watch it a million and a half times. So here's, here's what women did. This is, and, and, and we're, I mean, I think we all need to be acknowledged that this is so grateful that the feminist movement kind of did this. So in 1973, Sandra and Daryl Bem did their famous sex, Bem sex role inventory, right? And what they did was they took every single behavior trait and attitude that you could have, and they coded them as masculine or feminine. And what they found was traits like competent, assertive, and ambitious were coded as masculine. And traits like caring and loving and generous were coded as feminine. Now, since 1973, before that, in fact, women have been saying that is insane. 
I am, of course, kind and loving and nurturing, and I am also assertive and competent and ambitious. Women figured out that they can be whole people. Men, when you present that to them, even today in 2017, they're okay with the, oh yeah, I get the competent, ambitious, and assertive part. Eh, the kind and generous and nurturing, I'm not so sure. So the missing piece of this gender revolution, it seems to me, is to degender those traits from that men need to degender those traits that we have erroneously called feminine because those are human traits. We want men to be full human beings. This is how I think being an American, you know, we're in sales. I want to sell feminism to men because because greater gender equality, embracing a fuller palette of, of traits, attitudes and behaviors cannot help but be good for men as well as for women. Women have shown us over the past 50 years, this is really good. This works really well. See, aren't we awesome? Aren't we more interesting now? And so now men need to be whole human beings. So this is what I think we, you've asked me, what can we offer? What can we, how can we sell this? We sell this by saying, you've cut yourself off from half the human experience by embracing this traditional notion of masculinity, the thing that we call toxic. You'll live a, you'll live a better life if you could actually be a person. Now, remember, I am not talking about degendering people. I'm talking about degendering traits, attitudes, and behaviors. There's nothing inherently masculine or feminine about any of those traits. And that's where I think we have to go. And that's what I think we can offer to men. So, so that sounds lovely to me, but it also sounds like a way of tricking men into, yeah. um, so we say, uh, you too can be a whole human being. And then when they embrace all of those traits that, they, that have been previously off limits to them, they will suddenly realize that they are not any different than women. So have we given them a good place to land as men? Well, I think so. I think that, see, that's the thing. You know, you're absolutely right in, in theory. I think when we talked, when we were talking before about that thing about being a good man, that those really were traits that we would agree, you and I would agree, are being a good person. Mm -hmm. I think men still experience that in a very gendered way. They mm -hmm. think that that's what, that's about manhood. And I'm, I'm okay with them thinking that um, and expanding the definition. Look, I mean, it, you know, it, going back to your earlier or earlier uh, uh, comment about the two poles, about the in, include men or just build coalitions and, and forget them. You know, any human being in this country who's not concerned about the fact that the fastest growing demographic group that's committing suicide is middle aged white men who basically just wants to write them off. I'm sorry, that's not my coalition. I'm sorry. We need to be compassionate for them. We need to be compassionate about men who are feeling so despairing about their, their, their chances. We have an analysis of why that's happening. And it's about the intersection of class and race and gender. This is what we've done, you know, over the past 50 years since science was founded. This is what, what, what the, the, the academic, you know, field that we have tilled. And we're going to say, oh, but they don't count. The hell with them. My feeling is that that we, you know, this is not, um, the, the worst way to go is a kind of oppression sweepstakes. Um, there are still places where we can all agree. And, and those are the places where I think we have to, we have to put, you know, put our attention. Um, you know, the, con the health consequences for men, 
um, are dramatic. You know, men not go, you know, being so tough that they never go to the doctor because we're scared shitless. I mean, this is the, the we, we believe that courage and bravery is the most important trait of men. And yet the entire Republican Congress is completely, you know, uh, utterly, you know, wimpified. The the you know, men are afraid to go to the doctor for routine screenings. Um, we're we're terrified of most things. So let's let's encourage and support men doing the right thing because it's good for their families. It's good for them. Um, I don't think I don't see that as a contradiction with what we're what we're about politically at all. Yeah, well. I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, I do. I mean, I, of course, just like all men have women that they love in their lives, all women have men in their lives that they love as well. Um, and I hope we can offer them something that they find valuable. I think we do. I think, in fact, feminism, I, I've always said feminism is the best thing that ever happened to men. Um, because it enables, it gives us a, a, a map on how to be a whole person, um, how to have the relationships we want with ourselves, with our bodies, with, with women, with other men, with children. Uh, you know, it just, it, it's, it's always been, um, you know, to me, the, the, the answer, not the problem. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been lovely. Are we done already? God. Yeah, I think so. Oh. It's about time. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, is there something else you wanted to talk about? Well, I, I guess what I would want to say at the end is is simple because we're we're doing this for signs. And yes, the, the it's sort of ask a feminist and yes, it's uh, you know, so it tends to be a little bit more political than academic. But I you know, I I I've always been half of my I've always had one foot in the activist world and one foot in the academic world. And um, and so I think my conversation with you today, Lisa, has been um, uh, stress the, the activist part. Um, we haven't gotten into sort of theoretical sort of, uh, you know, conversations about masculinities and all of the different ways in which their analysis can be, you know, uh, the, the theoretical analysis can be sharpened and broadened and where the trends are in masculinity studies and stuff like that. And, and I'm not suggesting that we go there, but I do want to say to to science readers that this is a conversation um, that, I mean, I think we, we th th both of those conversations are necessary as we sharpen those theoretical tools, as we become more methodologically sophisticated in understanding the different ways in which different men experience masculinities so that we would be able to talk, for example, about African-American men or Asian-American men or gay men or in, in the same with the same kind of rigor that I've tried to decenter white masculinity and straight masculinity. I think that's an important intellectual project as well. So I don't want to I don't want to downplay that. But I do want to say that I, I love the conversation being more about our my activism. <laughs> well, I think that in my lifetime anyway, there has never been a moment where it has been more clear that the links between what we're doing theoretically and what we're doing um, out in our daily lives are incredibly important. And, and I, one thing I hope that happens is that all academics start to think a little bit bigger about what they're doing with their research and how it can help make the world a better place. I, I agree with you. I, I, I think that the situation is so dire and the crisis is so is so urgent that we really can't afford to have so many brilliant people not sort of pushing, not pushing outwards into the real world. I think that's a great place to end. Okay. Thank you. Great Thank you, Michael you. Kimmel.